Welcome, everyone, to episode 64 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another unsolved murder for you guys today. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Elizabeth Betsy Ardsma was the second of four children. She was born in Holland, Michigan to Esther and Richard Ardsma and raised in a middle-class, religious, and conservative household. Betsy's father was a sales tax auditor for the Michigan State Treasurer while her mother was a housewife. As a child, Betsy displayed a flair for art and poetry. By her adolescence, she had developed somewhat liberal ideals and displayed a concern for the underprivileged. Betsy also attended Holland High School and performed well academically, graduating with honors in 1965. Shortly after graduating from high school, Betsy enrolled in Hope College in the fall of 1965 with aspirations to become a physician. Her roommate, Linda Dinbesten, later recollected Betsy as an intelligent and fascinating individual who exhibited feminist traits. In the fall of 1967, Betsy enrolled at the University of Michigan, studying art and English and sharing an apartment with three other female students. By her senior year, she had begun dating a medical student named David Wright, who by all accounts was her first serious boyfriend. She graduated from this institution with honors in the summer of 1969. Upon graduation from the University of Michigan, Betsy initially intended to join the Peace Corps to travel to Africa, although she opted to enroll at Pennsylvania State University when she discovered that Wright, her boyfriend, intended to study there and that he could not guarantee he would remain loyal to her if she traveled abroad for any significant length of time. Betsy then enrolled at Penn State in early October 1969. She resided on campus in Atherton Hall and shared her residence with a student named Sharon Brandt, who would later recall that Betsy seldom pursued extracurricular activities and spent much of her free time either studying or, at weekends, traveling to Penn State to be in the company of her boyfriend. By Thanksgiving, Betsy is known to have exhibited symptoms of stress 
due to the fact that she had fallen behind on an English assignment. She spent the day prior to Thanksgiving in the company of her boyfriend, his roommates, and their girlfriends before returning to her dorm the following day with intentions to meet her professors for advice on a research paper that she needed to complete for her assignment. Wright drove Betsy to a nearby bus stop in Harrisburg on the afternoon of November 27th. At the time of her death, Betsy had been in a relationship with Wright for approximately one year, and the two had discussed plans to become engaged by Christmas. She had been a student at Penn State for just eight weeks when she was murdered. On the afternoon of November 28, 1969, Betsy and her roommate left their dorm to visit Penn State's library to obtain research material for her English paper. En route, the two parted company, having formed plans to reconvene later that afternoon to watch either Easy Rider or take the money and run at the local movie theater that evening. At approximately 4 p.m., Betsy spoke with one of her professors, to whom she stated her intentions to visit the stack building. Shortly thereafter, she encountered two friends named Linda Marsa and Robert Steinberg, with whom she briefly conversed before entering the library. She then placed her purse, jacket, and a book inside of the corral assigned to her before walking towards a card catalog. Having found the reference she sought, Betsy walked down a flight of stairs into the level 2 core stacks at approximately 4.30 p.m. The final potential sighting of Betsy in the level 2 core stacks occurred minutes before 4.30 p.m. when an assistant supervisor named Dean Brungert observed a girl in a red dress standing alone in an aisle with two young men talking quietly amongst themselves in a nearby aisle closer to the west end of the core. Approximately ten minutes later, another witness, Richard Allen, overheard a conversation between a male and female in the general direction of where Betsy stood as he operated a photocopier. Although Allen could not hear what the two spoke about, he informed the police that nothing sounded untoward. Moments later, Allen heard a metallic crashing noise before a young woman, whom he described as looking like a student, ran barreling past him. At some point between 4.45 and 4.55 p.m., Betsy was stabbed a single time through the left breast with a knife while standing between rows 50 and 51 in the dimly lit stack building of the library. This wound severed her pulmonary artery and pierced the right ventricle of her heart. Following the stabbing, Betsy slumped to the ground close to the end of the aisle, pulling several books off of the shelves as she fell onto her back. Two students then observed a man running from the direction of the commotion, concealing his right hand, exclaiming, That girl needs help. Eardly described this man as being dressed in khaki, washable slacks, a tie, and a sports jacket. He had well-kept brown hair, was approximately 6 feet in height and about 185 pounds, and may have been wearing glasses. This individual led Eufinda and Eldry into the core, where he pointed toward the prone body of Betsy, lying between scattered books and metal shelves 
which she had also knocked loose. As Erdely began to check for signs of a pulse, Euphenda observed this individual leaving the library. He discreetly followed the man upstairs, where the individual ran out of the library. Euphenda attempted to speak to the man, but was outpaced. This individual was last seen running in the direction of the recreation hall. Subsequent police appeals for the man or men who spoke to the couple before fleeing from the library to come forward were unsuccessful, and the individual has never been identified. As Euphenda attempted to pursue the individual fleeing from the library, Erdley attempted to render first aid to Betsy, including mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and was soon joined by a group of bystanders, including the librarian. A call was in place to the campus hospital at 5.01 p.m., with responders initially informed that a girl had fainted in the library. Two student paramedics were dispatched to the scene, arriving minutes later. Betsy was quickly placed on a gurney and removed from the, from the library via the service elevator to be taken to the health center as the paramedics continued to perform CPR upon her. The summoned ambulance transported Betsy to the health center. Although Betsy was wearing a white turtleneck sweater at the time of her stabbing, the wound produced only a small amount of visible blood. However, she was also wearing red sleeveless dress over this sweater at the time of her murder, and the clothing that she wore had been of a thick material in the November climate, thus meaning the single knife tear within her clothing was not immediately obvious. She had also urinated where she fell. As a result of the f- these facts, the non-medical individuals who discovered her body, plus the student first responders summoned to the scene, in response to the reports of a female student having fainted in the library, initially believed that she had indeed either fainted, experienced a seizure, or some other non-critical medical ailment. Very shortly after Betsy was transported to the health center, a more senior medical individual observed blood seeping through her clothing as the two student paramedics continued to perform CPR and immediately ordered the two to stop. Her blood-soaked blouse and bra were cut from her body to reveal a single stab wound. Betsy was pronounced dead by a physician at 5.19 p.m. Betsy's autopsy was conducted by Dr. Thomas Magnani at the Belafonte Hospital in Belafonte at 11 p.m. on November 28th, concluding at 4 a.m. The following morning, Dr. Thomas concluded that Betsy had been killed by a single stab wound, which had penetrated her breastbone, piercing her heart, and severing her pulmonary artery, causing extensive hemorrhaging into her chest cavity. Death had occurred within five minutes, and Betsy would have been unable to scream for help, as she essentially drowned in her own blood. Furthermore, she had not been subjected to any form of sexual assault. Signs of petechial hemorrhaging were also discovered on Betsy's chest, and minor signs of bruising and abrasions noted around one ear had likely been caused as she fell to the ground. The coroner further opined his belief that Betsy's murderer had intentionally aimed for her heart when he had stabbed her while facing her, and that her assailant was a right-handed individual. 
The Pennsylvania State Police assigned approximately 35 troopers to investigate Betsy's murder. These state police were assigned to usage of the Book Building in a temporary command center as they conducted interviews and hundreds of students were interviewed in the weeks following her death. The entire campus was unsuccessfully searched in an effort to locate the murder weapon, and a $25,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of Betsy's killer. Investigators would soon discover that up to 400 individuals would typically enter or exit the library between 4.30 and 5.00 p.m. on a Friday, although on the date in question, only about 90 had done so. None of those interviewed were considered viable suspects. Two composite drawings of the individual that Eufinda and Elderly, Erdly, had seen running from the direction of Betsy's stabbing were created. One with the assistance of Eufinda and a library desk clerk, and one with Erdly, although only Erdly's identikit image was released to the media. Before the police had even been notified of Betsy's death, the crime scene was compromised as library staff, believing Betsy had fainted or fallen, had ordered janitors to clean the urine from the tile floor of the aisle, fix the shelving, and restack the fallen books. As such, any physical evidence potentially left by her murderer at the scene was destroyed or compromised. However, the first trooper to visit the crime scene, Mike Simmers, ordered the area secured. A series of small, fresh blood droplets matching Betsy's blood type were recovered from the staircase leading into the level 3 core stacks, indicating her murderer had left the library via this route. Several factors in the circumstances surrounding Betsy's death led the police to believe that she had likely known her murderer, and she had evidently been approached from the front by her assailant within a row too narrow <clears throat> for one individual to pass unless another one of the two turned sideways and had made no attempt to scream or flee. Exhaustive research and questioning also led investigators to discount any possibility that she had been stalked and she had not been expected to be at Penn State that day but with her boyfriend who was quickly eliminated from the inquiry. <clears throat> Moreover, Although Betsy had recently expressed concerns about potentially becoming a, quote, physician's wife and a mother while still young to one acquaintance, none of the entries in her diary or the letters she regularly wrote to her boyfriend indicated that she had felt reluctant about her relationship prospects with him, interested in another suitor, or had otherwise felt intimidated or uncomfortable during the eight weeks she had been enrolled at Penn State. Other theories investigated have included the possibility Betsy may have stumbled upon a homosexual encounter, an exhibitionist or a man engaging in masturbatory fantasies, and had been murdered to ensure her silence. This theory was given particular credence by investigator Michael Much who speculated Betsy had, had observed two men engaged in sexual behavior, had rec recognized one or both men, and had been murdered to prevent her divulging to others what she had seen. A few aisles from where Betsy had been murdered, 
in a section of the core used to store desks and spare shelving. The investigators observed a desk with a seat pulled backwards. Atop of this desk is a half-empty can of soda and a small stack of heterosexual and homosexual pornographic magazines, some of which dated as recently as October and November of 1969. Furthermore, more than two dozen pornographic magazines were found, concealed between books in the aisle where she had been murdered, and ample traces of semen were discovered in multiple locations on the floor, shelves, and walls, with one investigator later commenting traces of semen were practically everywhere. These discoveries led investigators to conclude secluded areas of the sacks were used to conduct illicit sexual encounters. Although partial fingerprints were obtained from this can of soda, the prints did not match any within police databases. All fingerprints upon and within the magazines were smudged and unusable. Other theories that investigators considered were the possibility that Betsy may have been murdered by a spurned suitor, had witnessed a drug deal, and had been murdered to ensure her silence, or had been murdered due to an unsettled drug debt. However, although Betsy did smoke cigarettes and very occasionally drink alcohol, acquaintances were adamant that she was not a drug user. Despite several leads of inquiry being pursued and hundreds of potential witnesses interviewed over the span of several years, no individual was arrested for her murder. Despite the efforts of Pennsylvania State University and the president of the university, Eric Walker, who had conducted his own private investigation into Betsy's murder. The case gradually became cold, and the number of investigators assigned to the case decreased, as potential leads to pursue became increasingly scarce. Betsy's murder remains unsolved. Records pertaining to her murder remain sealed under the state's Open Records Act. However, the Pennsylvania State Police are still actively seeking information on the case. Spencer, a 40-year-old sculptor who had relocated to Pennsylvania from Boston with his second wife shortly before Betsy's murder. He had previously co-founded the Cafe Linya with his first wife in Saratoga Springs, New York in May of 1960, and had recently relocated to Pennsylvania with his second wife, obtaining employment teaching sculpture at a local college as his wife studied for her Ph.D. Spencer was first reported to police as a potential suspect in Betsy's murder after allegedly confessing to having killed that girl in the library at a Christmas 1969 gathering of faculty members. These claims culminated in his being formally questioned by investigators in early 1970. According to Spencer, he and Betsy had been acquainted and she agreed to pose nude for his sculpting classes to earn extra money. He had been in the level 2 course sacks at the time of her murder, and had seen her murderer, whom he insisted had been wearing an overcoat. He offered to construct a bust of the individual that he had seen for investigators, which he later provided to the task force assembled to apprehend her murderer. The police quickly dismissed Spencer's claims, as he and his wife had relocated to Pennsylvania just weeks prior to Betsy's murder. 
thus offering little time for the two to become acquainted. His claims that she had been a nude model were never corroborated and rapidly dismissed by investigators and acquaintances alike, as Betsy was known to be a prudish young woman. Furthermore, all nude models at Spencer's classes are known to have traveled to the university from Philadelphia. One student, who initially aroused investigators' suspicions, was a classmate of Betsy's named Larry Maurer. Larry is known to have become acquainted with Betsy in the weeks before her death, on one occasion taking her for a coffee. No ill feeling is known to have existed between the two, and Larry is known to have been cleared as a potential suspect in her murder, although it is unknown whether he actually passed or failed a polygraph test. However, Larry was a blonde individual of average height who did not wear glasses, making his physical appearance markedly different from that of the individual seen by three eyewitnesses, one of whom had been a classmate of his, running away from the level two course stacks immediately after Betsy's stabbing. Author Derek Sherwood and investigative journalist David DeCock have each published books focusing upon Betsy's murder. Both authors strongly believe Penn State professor Richard Charles Hefner, then a 25-year-old geology student at the university, was responsible for her death and not Larry or Spencer. A well-respected but socially awkward individual, Hefner is known to have taken extreme measures to obtain platonic relationships with women to conceal his homosexuality. On one occasion, in 1968, he is known to have traveled from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts to inform a girl that he barely knew that he loved her. He had arrived unannounced at her apartment to inform her of this fact, only to be surprised when she slammed the door in his face. Hefner resided across the courtyard from Betsy at Atherton Hall at the time of her death and was widely known for engaging in erratic behavior including periodic bouts of explosive anger and the suspected theft of several specimens from the university's rock and mineral collection. He was known to frequently dress in khaki trousers and a sports coat and to keep his brown hair short and tidy. His friendship with Betsy had been terminated by the victim shortly before her death. Hefner's name had first been mentioned to investigators days after Betsy's murder when her roommate, Sharon has suggested to police that he may be an individual they should talk with in relation to her murder. According to Sharon, Hefner had visited their apartment on more than one occasion in the weeks prior to her death. Hefner was questioned by investigators in early December of 1969, where he freely admitted having become acquainted with Betsy in late October and to have occasionally socialized with her. Although within approximately one week, she had terminated their budding friendship, stating she wished to remain committed to David. According to Hefner, he had been eating an evening meal at the Student Union building on the evening of November 28th, when he had first heard circulating rumors of a student having been murdered at the library. Furthermore, he had subsequently felt physically ill upon learning his, quote, former girlfriend had been the murdered student. He further claimed to have never set foot in the library, 
as he invariably in obtained research materials from the Deke building, where literature related to geology was stored. The identikit image created by Ufinda and a desk clerk never circulated to the media bears a striking resemblance to Hefner. In addition, his studying schedule shows he spent the two years following Betsy's murder studying almost exclusively off-campus. In August of 1975, two boys who worked in Hefner's family rock shop would separately accuse him of having molested them. Although his subsequent trial resulted in a hung jury, these accusations resulted in his filing a number of subsequent vindictive lawsuits. Hefner successfully ensured the expungement of his records pertaining to his arrest and trial in 1981. Several years after Betsy's murder, an acquaintance of Hefner's named Lauren Wright, no relation to David Wright, would report that shortly after 6 p.m. on the date of Betsy's murder, Hefner had arrived at his household in a state of exhausted panic, blurting, Have you heard? A girl I dated was murdered in the library. Having conversed with the Wrights for a short period of time, Hefner left their household. This account contradicts Hefner's official accounts of his movements, which he provided to the investigators. Wright failed to inform investigators of this conversation until 1976, following an argument with Hefner, who by the 1970s had begun to focus his interests upon volcanoology. He remained a close acquaintance of Hefner's until the latter died alone in a hospital bathroom in March of 2002. His cause of death was a tear in his aorta which bled into his lungs, a similar manner of death endured by Betsy. In 2009, a nephew of Hefner's contacted Sherwood to divulge that on one occasion in approximately 1975, he had overheard a heated conversation between Hefner and his mother, <clears throat> who had been aware of several accusations of pedophilia leveled against her son dating back to 1967. According to this individual, the conversation had occurred shortly after Hefner's 1975 arrest for molestation, and his mother had expressed her concerns as to whether the police suspected him of having, quote, killed that girl at Penn State. She also had chided him for coming to the attention of the police after all her efforts to protect him on the previous occasion. The overall context of this conversation indicated to Hefner's nephew that he had confessed to Betsy's murder to his mother, who had ended the scolding of her son with the sentence, You killed that girl, and now you're killing me. Betsy was laid to rest on December 3, 1969. Her casket remained open throughout the ceremony prior to her, in to her internment. She was buried in the Ardsma family plot within Pilgrim Home Cemetery in her hometown of Holland, with a single rose from her boyfriend placed in her hands. The final letter Betsy wrote to her boyfriend had arrived at his address the day after her murder. Betsy's murder ultimately became a major factor in the creation of a university police force at Penn State. The years prior to her death, 
had seen an increase in both violent crimes, sexual assaults, and raucous student protests at the university, which had only a campus patrol to provide immediate law and order. Her death epitomized the need for increased public safety measures on the university campus, and a university police force was established in the early 1970s. Our final story comes from yourghoststories.com, and it's about the writer's family's haunted property. The house, or more accurately, property in this story, has been in my family for decades. The story goes back quite far, into the 1950s. I first heard the story from my grandmother and great-aunt, on my father's side, when I used to stay with them. They would tell stories of bizarre events while I sat there listening, fascinated. It was these storytelling sessions where I first heard the stories of the house on North Street. I believe it was partially from these story sessions where I became enthralled with ghost stories and started reading them. The house and hill was owned by my great uncle. It was part of a farm of sorts and had no electricity. It's not that it wasn't available, it was just something my great uncle never bothered with. One night in the 50s, my dad and his siblings were still quite young. My great uncle and his whole family showed up at the house on North Street, visibly shaken. They seemed as if they had been terrorized, and like they had seen a ghost. They asked my grandfather if they could stay the night on North Street, and then asked if he would help them immediately relocate. They offered no explanation of what happened, just begging for help. They were clearly traumatized, according to my grandmother. Of course, being family, they were taken in for the night. My grandpa helped them move to a place a few miles further from their home. They would return to the house to retrieve only some clothes and personal possessions. My grandparents were only able to piece together what had happened in fragments. My great-uncle and his family had just sat down to supper when something happened that scared them so bad that they fled the property that night, leaving all their furniture and even the hot dinner still sitting on the table. Other than going back for a few items, as I mentioned, they never returned. They never talked about it to anyone, and my family tried for years to get them to speak about that night. My great-uncle, like my grandfather, who scoffed at these ghost stories, was a no-nonsense kind of man, not taken to flights of fancy, so I'm told. The family relocated a few miles away and tried to start over again. They never sold the house and property, and it remains in the family all these decades later. The house said abandoned. In the 60s, when my dad and uncle and their friends came of age, it became a place to hang out, kind of like a teen clubhouse. My dad and his friends would usually gather on North Street and hang out first. Their idea of fun was much tamer than today's generation, and even some back then. They got together and cooked up batches of french fries and ate and shot the breeze. At some point, they would drive up on the hill and hang out in the old house. One night, they too fled the hill, never to return. They saw a bat on the house, but that wasn't what drove them away. 
My dad typically doesn't like to talk about these things when asked about North Street. He kind of got short with me, saying that he didn't remember. His response came too quickly, though, in my opinion. When I asked him about the hill, he said no more to me. He told me it wasn't what they saw that night so much as what they felt. He described a feeling akin to terror and extreme anxiety that seemed to come from nowhere and everywhere all at once and pursued them until they left the hill. As the years went on, the house decayed and was left to vandals and thugs and things were stolen and graffiti left everywhere. My brother and his friends would visit for a thrill and to scare each other, but he admits that there was something creepy about the place and even a few of his friends ran from the house. As my brother got older, he began to hunt on the land, but told me he always left before nightfall. He informed me the place changed at night, and as soon as the sun set, you felt as if you were being watched. You could never see anyone, but it was a heavy feeling that permeated the entire property and the house. The feeling inspired anxiety and fear, but with no visible or audible source. To avoid it, he just left before it got dark. He said he wasn't the only one. Others with permission to hunt on the land described almost the same feeling and always after sunset. It's possible, of course, that over the years, the stories handed down about the place could feed the fear factor and cause some, some of these encounters. However, again, no one saw anything. It's only what they felt, and the stories were consistent, even from people not familiar with the place. Also, still, there's the original event, an entire family that just up and flees from their home. My brother had encountered the older children, who still tended the property, and when he asked them about that night, the night they fled, they would quickly change the subject. My brother told me an interesting story that one of the adult kids of the original family had actually taken an interest in the old family property and lovingly restored it. The house was knocked down, the pond cleaned up, and the acreage mowed. My brother told me this was kept up for some time, and for a while things simmered down. A person could be up there without the awful feelings, and the property took on a more pleasant feel to it. Eventually, one of the other kids, though, started to let people hunt up there again and they trampled all over the place and it fell into disuse once again. On my trip home, my brother and a close friend whom we grew up with gathered at my brother's house one night to hang out and catch up. My brother had purchased the house next door to my parents. It had once belonged to an old couple we knew growing up and the old man had passed away years ago in the house. My brother had told me the old man still hangs around the place, apparently unable to move on. So that night, as my brother and our neighbor and friend laid into a generous supply of beer while we reminisced, the focus of our conversation inevitably turned to ghost stories. My niece and her friend were upstairs playing games and filming dancing videos and making quite a bit of noise. However, as I got late, they came downstairs and became interested in what we were talking about. At first we discussed the old man at my brother's house. What was strange was my niece's friend suddenly said that she saw the image of a hat, like the one on the couch. 
The hat she pointed at was a smaller version of a fedora, something more fashionable that kids wear. What she described, though, fit the description of an old fisherman's hat. It was what the old man frequently wore. He would have... How would she have known that? He died well before her time. Perhaps my brother or someone had mentioned it to her, but she didn't seem to know the stories about the old man, and my brother probably wouldn't have been descriptive enough to mention the hat. Either way, we hadn't... We hadn't mentioned it prior on that evening, so I knew they couldn't have heard it from listening from upstairs with the racket that they were making. Regardless, they wanted to hear the family stories, and since they were 15, about the age when I had first heard them, I told them and my brother added his experiences. They listened intently, and when we started to talk about the hill, my niece's friend stated that she saw the color red for some reason. Again, we didn't think too much about it, although in hindsight, I wonder if she had some psychic intuitive senses. As my brother opened up about having some kind of visions on the property, he didn't elaborate on what that accompanied the feelings of anxiety. He informed us that the house had been knocked down. I didn't even know that. When we started about North Street, my niece's friend said that she saw the color blue. That was the color of the place on North Street. How could she have known that? Neither my niece or her friend knew about that place. In fact, my brother and I drove them by North Street the next day and pointed it out for the first time. What was interesting was that my brother and our friend had become quite inebriated. They suddenly had the brilliant idea to have me drive them up on the hill to experience the bizarre feelings up there firsthand. I was the only sober one beside my niece and her friend. This was about 3 a.m. now. I, of course, knew this was an extremely bad idea. My brother and our friend had false courage thanks to the alcohol, and they wanted a thrill. I informed them that both, in no uncertain terms, would they get me within a hundred miles of that place, especially at night. I was being sarcastic as the place in question was only 10 to 15 minutes away, but they got the point. Of course, they pursued the matter. What was strange was the no-nonsense way I spoke about it. Although the place did freak me out, I wasn't scared at that moment. I just informed them that what was up there on the hill didn't want to be disturbed and it would be a bad experience for both of them. As for myself, I already believed in the afterlife. I didn't need a direct experience and certainly not one of that caliber. I was talking with a sense of wisdom and knowledge I didn't know I had. It's as if it was coming from somewhere else. No, it wasn't possession. I clearly remember everything, and I hadn't been drinking. It's just as if I suddenly understood more about the hill than I should have, if that makes any sense. What's even stranger was that my niece's friend suddenly began also speaking in a no-nonsense way. She told my brother that he didn't want to be disturbed. He still considered it his property and didn't like intruders. She didn't speak in a panic sense, but almost with a passion, as it were. Like some truth needed to be told, 
if that makes any sense. What's even more bizarre was that I accepted what she said without question, as if on some level I knew it to be true. I thought there was more than one spirit up there, though, and when I asked about him, she said that she saw him as an older man, like a farmer, but couldn't, couldn't tell me where this was all coming from. Being younger, maybe she was more open? I have no explanation for this sudden bout of wisdom and where it came from, for either of us. Perhaps it was our guide or guardian angel, or maybe whatever entities that haunted the hill, sensing my brother's intention and trying to put a stop to any shenanigans before they started. I realize afterwards that typically before regaling in the telling of any ghost stories, I protect myself and take the proper safeguards, but this time in my excitement, I neglected to shield myself. Either way, as I continued to talk them both down, they reached that point prior to passing out. So after instructing my niece to hide the keys to the truck and satisfying myself that they weren't going anywhere, I went to bed. It would be dawn in only a couple more hours. Despite everything else, I intuitive, intuitively knew it was a bad idea to go up on the hill, especially when the two of them had been drinking. I believe it makes people more susceptible to ghost encounters. When drunk, a person is more vulnerable and their guard is down. I've known psychics who state drinking punches holes in a person's aura and energy field, and I can only imagine if they're sensitive, it's much worse. It always amazes me that people disregard a person's ghost story if they're under the influence, because their senses cannot be trusted. We don't always see ghosts with our physical senses, though. In this case, other stories, people can't see the spirit or hear it, but they feel it. They don't tip physically feel it, but we sense it, and with something beyond out five physical senses, we know it's there. When drunk, the filters a person has to not seeing or experiencing the supernatural are also down making them more likely to encounter something. I'm not suggesting that we believe everyone who has encountered a ghost while drinking, and it, should be readily, and it shouldn't be readily believed. We still need to do our due diligence there, but it does need to be considered that a person could encounter something not of this world more readily in that state than a sober one. It's another perspective. That being said, the only thing, the only other thing I can offer is what little I know of the history of the property. Not much is known. Indians fre frequented the area, and I'm not suggesting such a cli something cliche such as a burial mound, but there were skirmishes in settler times. A fort was burned nearby, and the whole area used to be a hideout for renegades, pirates, and outlaws because it was so far out of the way back in the the pioneering days. I don't know what could have caused the so-called haunting any more than what drove the family off the hill that night, so long ago, but I thought that I would just share the story. Well, that is going to do it for today. Thank you everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the stories.
If you could, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to share with friends and family, and make sure that you join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you do enjoy the podcast, please consider helping to support the show by subscribing on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.